1 Timothy chapter 1 is a series that Pastor Stephens began a couple weeks ago. We've been working through, section by section, through the book of 1 Timothy. Our theme this year as a church is just maturing. Maturing as individuals and also maturing as a church. And this epistle of Paul's to the young Timothy is certainly one of growing the church, maturing the church. So we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 20 of, of chapter 1. Um, as I was thinking through uh, this message, wrestling through this message, um, thinking of a way to open this message, um, that, that's always a struggle because <laughs> that doesn't come naturally to me, to um, study the text and figure out what the text is saying. I, I, I like doing that, but then conveying that to you is, is another thing. We've got a lot of heavy lifting to do this morning, um, a lot of different things to look at, and it's only a few verses, but there's a lot that we uh, need to talk with, so hopefully you're buckled up and, and ready to go. Are you with me? Okay, all right, sounds good. Um, no, there's, there's things a lot of times in life that we know we need to do, we know we need to do them, but out of laziness or inconvenience or indifference, we just kind of hope that they'll take care of themselves, right? A lot of times that happens in our, in our lives. For me, um, sometimes it looks like when you've cooked something in a pan and it gets caked around the pan and you really don't want to spend the time to scrub that out, what do you do? You fill it up with some water and put some soap in there and you let it sit overnight, right? Like, you got to let it soak, right? Um, and I don't know about you, but for me, it's, I'm going to let that soak, and I'm just kind of hoping that that pan will take care of itself. And it doesn't take care of itself. I have a lovely, beautiful wife who uh, takes care of it for me. Um, there isn't some elf that comes in the middle of the night and scrubs the dish up. Uh, that's an example of something that I know needs to be done, but you just kind of hope that it's going to take care of it itself. Maybe, maybe in your life it's, it's losing weight or getting healthy, um, so you you step on the scale expecting to see a lower number, but you really shouldn't expect to see a lower number because nothing changed. Like, you didn't do anything to expect to see a lower number. Maybe magically, that the, when I step on the scale, there'll be a, a lower number there. Maybe you, you know something needs to happen, but you're just kind of hoping that that will take care of itself. Um, for me, right now, too, I am in the pages. That's not me being potty trained. That's my kids being potty trained. I've got a four and a two-year-old. And so the four-year-old is doing really well, except for at bedtime we still struggle a little bit. But I've got a two-year-old who is just now starting in the, the potty training phase. And sometimes we just kind of expect to know or, or expect a kid to, to get it right away, expect them to know how to sense that and to feel that and to go and, and sit on the potty. Um, and I'm confident that my two-year-old boy will figure it out someday. I'm, I'm confident that he will at some point be potty trained, but my hope is just kind of that that, that will happen on its own. Um, but the reality is he needs to be taught. Like Somebody needs to invest the time and energy and patience into potty training him. This is going to be a really weird segue, and I'm sorry about that. But, but when it comes to our faith, right, when it comes to our faith, God doesn't call us to sit passively by, hoping that things will happen, hoping that things work out in certain ways. But he actually calls us to active. He calls us to activity. And that's what our passage is about this morning. So I'm going to read it for you. First Timothy 
1, 18 through 20. It says this, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, um, and as we feel the the weight, too, of these words, Lord, I I pray that... um, it would not be a flippant way that we approach it, um, that, that we would see it for what it is, God, and that your Holy Spirit would work through my words and through and in the hearts of the hearers this morning, God, that we would see this clearly for what it is and also know how to respond in our own contexts, in our own situations. Give us clarity now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, the theme of First and Second Timothy is sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. Um, and so I'm going to click through some of these uh, verses. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, if you could give me that first one, and then we'll be good to go here. It says this, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, this is 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. I guess I don't have that up there. You're good. I'm good now, thank you. So that, that's the idea here. We started that there. We charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. First Timothy 1.10, uh, he says this, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. First Timothy 4.1, and if you're going to flip there, you can do that. You can try to keep up with me, but I'm going bang, 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 bang. First Timothy 4.1 says this, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That's false doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.6 If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Good doctrine. 4.16 Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and and your hearers. And then 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 4. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Sound doctrine, sound doctrine, sound doctrine. The teaching that was delivered to you. What is sound doctrine? What is sound doctrine? Sound doctrine is based on Scripture. It has to be. Sound doctrine cannot be based on religious tradition, personal opinion, or personal experience, based on Scripture. I was talking with my class this morning, my, my teen class. We're going through how to study Scripture, and I brought out the point that, have you ever noticed that most Christian churches don't come out and say, yeah, we don't believe the Bible. You're not going to find that on a, on a church website. Like, yeah, the Bible's great, but we don't believe it. And there's some progressive churches that maybe, maybe do that, that um, but by and large, most churches are going to self-identify as Bible-believing churches. So then what is the distinction? What's the difference? Well, it matters how we interpret Scripture, right? It matters how we I- interpret it, and not just um, reading our own meaning into it, 
but taking the meaning out of the text. That is what sound doctrine is based on, a interpretation of Scripture. And sound doctrine also needs to be biblically balanced. Biblically balanced. You can take a biblical concept to an unbiblical extreme. And I know that's sometimes hard. You're like, well, what does that mean? But we can take things in Scripture, we can take them to an unbiblical extreme when we just lack that one thing, and we don't look at the whole of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, and maybe where there's balances in, in God's Word. We can see balances in God's Word. And to us, they appear as, as tensions, right? Um, so we can take things and, and blow them out of proportion if we're not careful, right? So that's what sound doctrine is, properly understanding God's Word based on God's Word, interpreting God's Word uh, not with our meaning in mind, but with the text's meaning in mind, and balancing it biblically with the whole counsel of God. And so Paul here to Timothy says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, that you, uh, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Wage the good warfare. So there is a war for truth raging today and in Timothy's day as well. Uh, Timothy's day, they were dealing with all sorts of false teaching. We know that there were some uh, leaders in the church, uh, pastors, elders in the church who had gone astray. Um, So Timothy was dealing with that, but there's a war for truth today in our context as well. A war for what is true. Did God create, or has matter and energy always been here? Sin, are we accountable to anyone? Or is it just kind of what society decides is right and wrong? What is humanity? Are we creatures like the rest of the creatures we see and we're just more highly evolved? We've just come a little bit farther along the chain? Or are we special creations of God? Uh, gender. Did God create man and woman? Or is that just a social construct that we came up with um, somewhere along the line? And the value of life. Does life have value? You can kind of see how all of these things have implications. All of these things lead to conclusions. Does life have value? Does life um, in the womb have value? There's a war for truth today. But the scary thing is, even for our, our teens now, is that in today's culture, there isn't just a war on what is true and what isn't. There is a war on whether truth exists at all. Can we know truth? And if it does exist, uh, can we even know what that truth is? That is the type of um, concepts that our young people are dealing with today. We live in a relativistic culture, right? Live your truth. Follow your heart. Okay? That's what the world is teaching. And so we that Timothy is urged to wage the good warfare. He's called back to sound doctrine. Teach sound doctrine. So if you are feeling a little inadequate, maybe you're a parent and, or a grandparent, and you're sitting here and you're feeling a little bit inadequate, a little bit ill-equipped to wage the war against the lies of our culture, against the lies of Satan, you're feeling inequipped and inadequate, you're in good company. Uh, so did Timothy, I believe. Uh, Timothy is often uh, referred to as timid Timothy, and maybe that's a little bit unfair of him. He was a young uh, pastor in a difficult context doing difficult things. So he's referred to as Timothy, uh, timid Timothy a lot. But we notice in this passage that Paul reminds him, he says, in accordance with the prophecies previously 
made about you. Apparently, uh, something happened in Timothy's life early on in his life, and through the work of the Spirit, uh, it was confirmed his, his calling to this role. There's um, a place in Acts chapter 13 where this isn't referring to Timothy, but it, it, it's maybe illustrative of what uh, happened to Timothy, perhaps. Uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, oh, wow, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So that kind of gives us a picture of what that may have looked like for Timothy. There's some uh, work of the Spirit that confirmed Timothy's calling. So in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Paul was reminding Timothy of this, saying, Timothy, God has called you to this. This is your task. This is what the Lord has given you. Timothy was called to this, this task at the church of Ephesus. But the question this morning is then, what is, what is your calling? What is your calling? My first point this morning is to beware of the Be aware of the battle. There is a battle going on, as in Timothy's time, but also today, a battle for truth. Moms and dads, you don't need prophets to lay hands on you to tell you what your calling is. You are called to raise your children to love the Lord. And, and for all of the aspirations that you have for them, whether it be academic or um, athletic or even finances or even I want to teach them to have manners or I want to teach them to have these certain values, for all the things that you want for your kids, what priority do you place on teaching your children to know, love, and serve the Lord? to know sound doctrine? What priority do you way too often, I hear this way too often, that, well, I don't want to force faith on them. Uh, They need to make their own decisions. I don't want to drive them away. I don't want to push too hard. And I understand that to a degree. We can't make them believe. We can't make them have faith. But we are called to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Proverbs 22, 6, train a child up in the way that he should go. We have a calling. We have a calling that we need to do. And that's parents and grandparents. We're part of a local body. And as I was talking about in our announcements, what we're trying to do on Wednesday nights is to have that intergenerational discipleship. If you're an older believer in the church, a more mature believer, you have a calling to help train up these young people. The thing is, if we don't teach our kids, somebody will. If we don't teach our kids, somebody will. So, oh, I don't want to force faith on them. I don't want to push them in any one direction. Well, the culture doesn't feel the same way about it. The culture wants to push our children in a different direction. The culture has an agenda to teach our kids. What the culture teaches is not just wrong, it's deadly. Go look up the statistics on anxiety and depression and gender confusion and disregard for human life. It's staggering. It's staggering and it's sad. But that's the fruit of a culture that is departed from God's word. It's departed from what is sound doctrine. So it's raging for our hearts and the hearts of our children. Are you in the fight? 
you may find yourself asking then, well, where do I start? <laughs> like, okay, there's a battle. There's a battle going on. I need to be reminded of that. Where do I start? Or maybe you're thinking like, yeah, I know. There's a battle. I've seen its effects on my family. I've seen its effects on my own heart. And, and I've tried my best, but where do I go from here? And Paul answers that for Timothy in verse 19. He kind of restates what he said back in chapter 5. He says, This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Holding faith and a good conscience. Faith. We are saved by grace through faith. Amen. Amen. We're not, we're not going to get to uh, the pearly gates someday. I don't even know where that picture came from. But walking up the pearly gates, and yet my, my good works outweigh my bad works. I tried to live a good life. These are the things I did for charity. These are the things I did for my church. Got to let me in. That's, that's not the concept we get from Scripture. From scripture. Our, our, our works are as filthy rags. We have uh, this need. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we have this need to be uh, born again. Christ went to the cross, took the penalty for our sin, and through faith and repentance, we can have eternal life. Our sins are paid for. So we're under, we, we understand that concept, um, but, but faith can be understood in a couple of different ways. We can talk about the faith. The faith is the truth of the gospel, sound doctrine. We we're talking about. That's the faith. And, but the thing is, knowing it, knowing the doctrine is one thing, but believing it and living it is another thing, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, it's, are you with me? It, uh, believing it, you know, knowing it is one thing. Believing it and living it is, is another thing. So there's the faith, but then there's also personal faith. That's one's own personal belief and trust and submission to the truth. Do you have personal faith this morning? Yeah. Thank you. She's with me. Notice, though, that I didn't ask about something that you did in the past. I didn't ask about something that you had in the past. I said, do you have personal faith now, right? Is this, is this something that is the current posture of your heart? I have faith. I am living in faith. Now, there's times where I experience doubt, and there's times where it's hard, but I trust in the Lord. That's personal faith. Faith is indispensable if we are to wage the good warfare for our own hearts we're going to wage war for our families, if we're going to wage war for our churches, for our community, we have faith. But faith is more than knowing. Faith is believing, and believing manifests itself in action. Paul says faith, holding faith, and a good conscience. A good conscience, that's integrity of heart, morality, obedience, so sound doctrine in the head does not necessarily translate or equal holiness in the heart. Faith and a good conscience. Faith that works itself out. Okay? I'm not talking about earning our salvation. I'm not talking about working for our salvation. I'm talking about a salvation, a faith that produces fruit. James talks about this in James chapter 21. He says, Therefore, and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You know what the worst part about being deceived is? We don't know what's happening, right? And we see right here that we can deceive ourselves, right? 
Oh, I would never let that happen. Well, be careful, because we don't know when we're being deceived. We can deceive ourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Right? Do you agree with the theology of that song? <laughs> what? O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E. I never, ever forgot how to spell that word in spelling class and grammar class because of that song. Right? Do you agree with the, the theolo- theology of that song? Right? It's taught in Scripture. Like, we show our faith we do, and that's what Paul is getting at here. He's saying faith and a good conscience, a faith that shows itself, a faith that works itself out in actions. And of course, we know ditches on either side of us. Okay? Like we're walking down a road, and I can fall into the ditch this way, I can fall into the ditch this way. So over here, there's legalism. It's a cold and, and rigid adherence to rules as a means of earning favor with God, and even kind of elevating myself above, above others, like, look at all the things that I do, and look at all the things that I don't do. That's kind of a legalistic mentality. We don't want to do that. Scripture talks vehemently against that, right? Pharisees, right? We don't want to be like them. And over here, though, there's libertinism, right? The, the disregard for authority, morality, and obedience. I don't care about morality, what's right and wrong. I don't care about authority, right? It's just all in the name of liberty, right? Christ has called us to freedom, right? That's, that's liberty over there. That we need to be careful of both of those things. Sometimes it's referred to as, like, I have a license now to sin because Jesus died for my sin. Right? So I can go and do whatever I want. Yay. That's not what Scripture calls us to. What Scripture calls us to is love. Right? And this is what Paul started 1 Timothy with, with in verse 5. He says the aim, this is chapter 1, verse 5, he says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, right? We're called to love. Love what? Love God, right? Our culture has a very skewed understanding of what love is. Love is not just acceptance for anything and everything. But love is rooted in a love for God and a wanting to please God that translates into a love for others. That's what we're called to as believers, we're called to love. So we've got faith and a good conscience. A conscience is our, our moral compass, right? But the thing is, our conscience can be seared by sin. Every, we're supposed to do it every like three or four months. Have this piano tuned. Um, when the seasons change, I'm not a scientist, okay? Barometric pressure, humidity, whatever. That changes is the instrument. There's tensions in there. There's uh, <sighs> strings. Strings in there, right? That, that they can get all out of whack. Now imagine if I was going to tune the piano and we grabbed the piano from the uh, fellowship hall back here and we wheeled it back here. Has ever heard the piano from the fellowship hall? Ding, ding, ding. We've wheeled that piano back here. And I was like, okay, I'm going to tune the grand piano and I'm going to tune it to the fellowship hall piano. Ding, 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 ding. Over here, okay. Try to, t- what would happen? Well, this would be, uh, maybe would be in tune with the 
piano from the fellowship hall, but the problem is what? Well, the standard was, was wrong, right? I need to tune the piano according to a tuning fork, and now I know there's all, it's all digital now, so you just press a button and it ding, plays the tune, but we tune it to the, the perfect standard, not to the standard of what can happen with our conscience, right? We can think, I'm a, I'm a good person, I'm okay, I'm doing all right, but our consciences have tuned to the culture. At least I'm not like my neighbor, at least I'm not like my coworker. Have you seen what so-and-so does? I don't, I'm not a part of that. And so we start to think in our hearts that we have this good conscience, but we're tuned to the wrong thing. What happens when we look at Scripture? We compare our heart to God's Word. We're tuning our conscience to God's Word. And that's what Paul is urging Timothy to hold on to. Faith and a good conscience. i got to really move here. Number two, actively reinforce your faith. So, Be aware of the battle going on there, but then actively reinforce your faith. And I get this actively part here because he uses the word holding, right? Holding. This is present. I mean, it's happening now. It's active. That means we are doing the action. And it's a a participle. It means it's ongoing. It's something that we do and forget about. Something that we continually do. Holding faith and a good conscience. So the text this morning is not urging us to consider whether we have been close to God at one time in the past, and nor are we to consider like, oh yeah, sometime in the future, yeah, I'd really... We're, we're called to, to think about what we're doing now. Are we holding to faith and a good conscience? Are you coasting in your spiritual walk? Are you coasting? Are you in neutral? Um, here's the thing. The culture has a current. Culture has a current. If you're not paddling in a direction, you are being dragged by the current. You are drifting. You're drifting. Now, here's the sobering part of this passage. Some have drifted into shipwreck. That's what this passage tells us. Some have drifted into shipwreck. He says in verse 19, by rejecting this, rejecting what? By rejecting faith and a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Okay, this is when I said we have to do some heavy lifting. We've got some heavy lifting to do here. What does it mean that someone has made shipwreck of their faith? Well, there's a couple of uh, clues in the, the text that we can look at. It uses the word rejecting this. Rejecting. It's used a few different times in Acts, that word rejecting. Uh, it's used uh, to describe when uh, fronted that Hebrew who was... Um, quarreling with his, his brother, and Moses kind of steps in there, and that guy's response is, is uh, you know, what are you going to do, kill me like you did the Egyptian? Remember that story? Hopefully you do. Uh, he, it says he rejected Moses, or he thrust Moses aside. That's where that word is used there. He thrust Moses aside. Um, in another place, in Acts chapter 7, it's also used to describe thrusting Moses aside again when they, the, the people, the Hebrew people, turned from Moses and they wanted to you know, worship the, the Egyptian gods again and they asked Aaron to make the golden calf. It says they thrust Moses aside. They thrust aside uh, his teaching and his authority and essentially rejecting God. Uh, It's used again in Acts chapter 13. The Jews thrust aside the gospel that Paul and Barnabas taught. And and therefore, that's when Paul and Barnabas decided that they're going to go to the the Gentiles then. They they rejected the gospel. So this word here, rejection, 
that we need to think of it rightly. Um, this quote is helpful. It says, The usage in Josephus and Philo indicate the word often connotes a rash and violent dispersal of something or putting someone to flight. Paul may be understood as describing not a less than perfect faith or a spiritual outlook not completely congruent with his own, but a determined or even vehement blockage. His implied critique in this verse is by no means petty. So whatever it is that Hymenaeus and Alexander rejected, their rejection was not mild critique or just kind of um, respectful. It was active rejection. It was contagious opposition. So we see that word rejected there. There's also this word blaspheme. Blaspheme. Blasphemy is to speak with irreverence, to malign, to slander the sacred. That's to slander God, to slander his word, to go against God's teaching. Certainly not a nice or pretty thing there. But then we also see this idea of being handed over to Satan. Paul says, I have handed over to Satan. We see that in another place in the New Testament as well. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's the, the man who's involved in an incestuous relationship, um, and he's kind of smug about it. The church knows about it. There's no um, action being done about it. And Paul says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. A couple of things here. This is someone who bears the name of brother. This is someone who professes to be a Christian, someone who's involved in the church. He, he professes Christ. And that's an important thing to point out because we have different responsibilities towards those who are inside the church versus those who are outside of the church. His actions and unrepentant attitude were not consistent with genuine conversion. So Paul's um, command there is to, to say, discipline him out of the church. Is that unloving? Is that uncaring? Notice the heart behind this. Why? Why do we do this? Well, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, so that he recognizes that his actions are not consistent with the gospel. His actions are not consistent with genuine conversion, that he would see that and repent. That's the, that's the goal. So what does it mean to shipwreck concerning the faith? Some would say, they had salvation, but they lost it. Scripture has a lot to say about eternal security. And I'm going to run through several verses here on eternal security because it's important. It's additional to what we're discussing. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We're going to look at this verse in our small groups later on. Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's, that's completion, right? That's completion. That is on the last day, I will raise it up on the last day. John chapter 10, verse 28 through 30. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Romans eight twenty nine through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren's brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he 
also glorified. When God justifies someone, it's a guarantee that they will be glorified. True justification ends in glorification, eternity with Christ. Romans 8, 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's the continuation of Christ's ministry for us. He died for us, he paid the penalty for our sin, and he continues to intercede on our our behalf. Philippians 1.6. You with me? Okay, Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I am sure of this. Ephesians 1. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of believed in him, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire of it to the praise of glory. The idea here is that God finishes what he starts. So as some would look at the shipwrecked faith there, they would they'd say, ah, you, you know, they had salvation, but then they lost it. They sinned too much, and so they lost it. That's that's not the case. Someone who has genuine salvation doesn't lose it. Others would look at shipwrecked faith and they would say, well, they're genuine believers but are living in habitual and unrepentant sin and they're in doctrinal error and therefore their faith, it's still genuine but it's unfruitful and, and therefore their ministry is, is ineffective. That's what shipwrecked faith means. Well, let's look at a few other passages of Scripture. Like, too, much, too much Scripture. I'm, I'm sorry. Sorry, you're in church, okay? This is what we do. Okay, uh, let's keep going. So John eight, 8 thirty one and forty seven. So Jesus said to the who had believed him, it, Rick, can you just mute this and then do the pulpit mic kind of testing? Okay, John eight thirty one says. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Continuing in the faith. Matthew chapter 7. Right? Those who did all these great things, and Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Notice he doesn't say, I knew you at one point, and, and, and you walked away, and I don't know you anymore. No, I, I never knew you. You are never a part of this. Matthew chapter 13. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and is not, does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what he has sown in his heart. This is the parable of the sower and the seeds. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. 1 John 2.19, I think, is a really good, helpful verse for us to understand what's going on here. It says, they went out from us, 
but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. So in John's church, those who walked away proved that they were never genuine believers to begin with. And so shipwrecked faith, when I'm looking at Hymenaeus and Alexander, seems to me that they were not genuinely in the faith. At one time, they made a profession of faith. Perhaps they even still did profess faith, but by evidence of their lives and the rejection of core teachings central to the gospel message, it revealed that their profession of faith was not genuine conversion. So shipwreck is walking away from the truth of the gospel, having once professed faith. So here's the tension. In Scripture, we both have the promise of eternal security, and thank God for that. We have assurance that way. The promise of eternal security, but we also have this charge to persevere, to persevere. So why the charge to persevere if genuine believers cannot lose their salvation? Why these warnings in Scripture? Here's the thing. These are God's convicting means of awakening those who have maybe made a profession of faith with their lips, but they're still dead in their sin. If there isn't fruit of salvation, then there is not salvation. If there's no light or heat, there isn't fire. And so these warning passages of Scripture are what God uses to awaken us to see whether we are in the faith. They're also God's gracious means of preserving those who are truly his. God's people, those who are truly his children, they heed and, and hear God's word, and they persevere. That's, that's how God designed it to work. A couple of passages here. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. You are in the faith. Test yourselves. Now, this isn't just go about your life doubting your salvation all the time and not ever resting in Christ's finished work for you on the cross. That's not what he's talking about, but he's just saying, hey, are you in God's word and are you truly examining yourself to, to truly know whether you are in the faith? Are you persevering in your faith? Or is it just something that was a part of your past and yeah, I did the thing and I was a part of the thing for a little while? Do you have continual faith? Are you walking in faith and repentance? Not just a thing that you did in the past, but are you in the faith? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Be aware of the battle. Actively reinforce your faith. And then avoid shipwreck. Avoid shipwreck. So how does God keep genuine believers from falling away? How does he empower them to persevere? He uses means. He uses means. And what is his primary means for the preservation of his people? He uses his spirit, convicting work in the life of every believer. He uses the word, what we're doing today. And he uses God's people, the church. That's how we continue in the faith. That's how we charge forward, persevering in the faith. Keep a close watch on yourself. And on the teaching. This is later on in the passage. Keep a close watch on yourself, Timothy, and the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And, and we recognize that it's God who saves. 
But God delights in using human agents to accomplish salvation. He uses us to preach and teach the message. So Paul's advice to Timothy is this. Walk closely with the Lord. Continue to speak and teach the truth faithfully. Now, it's not lost on me that um, perhaps many of you in this room have seen someone walk away from the faith, either a parent or a spouse or a child or even a pastor. And what do we do when the pain of that stings and cuts deep? Where do we go? Um, This is what we do. We cast our care and our heartache on the Lord, okay? He's sovereign. He judges justly. And you know what else he does? He honors the prayers of his children. We pray for them. We pray for them. We walk even closer with our Savior, keeping a watch on ourselves, and we continue to pray and speak the truth. Has my collar been up this whole time? Somebody should have told me. One final caution as I close. We cannot see anyone's heart. I mean, I'm just assuming. Anyone see? We cannot see anyone's heart. We can see their actions. We can hear their words. We can evaluate whether someone's actions and words demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, but we cannot see their heart. So you and I are not the ultimate judge, jury, and executioner of someone's soul. God is. So we rest in that. We keep a watch on ourselves, and we continue in the faith. We continue to speak truth. It's a difficult passage, but it's a a necessary one. If we want to persevere in our faith, we don't just sit back passively. We press on. We wage the good warfare. We cling to faith and a good conscience. We teach the truth. Let's pray.